This is what we find in the Word of God. Be at peace with each other. Wash one another's feet. Love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Have equal concern for each other. Serve one another in love. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Do not lie to each other. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love one another. Just some of the 59 one another's in the New Testament. Do you get the picture? We're in this together. Amen. Hallelujah. We're in this together. We're a coaching community. We support, we teach, we encourage, we demonstrate We multiply, we coach one another towards the likeness of Christ. Today's core value reminds us that we don't do this on our own. Making disciples is part of our plan and mandate from God as a church. The church is a coaching community. That's how we make disciples. And discipleship occurs in relational environments. Jesus had returned to heaven, sent his spirit at Pentecost, and the church was unleashed. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, there's this lovely, insightful phrase spoken regarding some of the disciples. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note, what? That these men had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus because that's how Jesus taught. That's how he established his church. That's how he discipled. That's how he coached in relational environments. It's not as though there weren't schools in the first century. You could go to school. You could go in um, Athens and you could learn from the Stoic philosophers or the Epicurean philosophers or in Israel. You could learn from various rabbis and you'd sit in school and you would learn and there were all over that um, ancient first century world huge amphitheaters that some of us may have stood in, the relic of now, that would take 50,000 plus people. They were not unfamiliar with large settings of learning in the first century. Why wouldn't Jesus set up a megachurch? That's a good question, isn't it? 50,000 people would gather together. He could have done it that way. Make sure you stop and think about that. He really could have done it differently But he didn't. The greatest teacher who would ever open their mouth on this earth chose the pathway of relational proximity to his students. Up close, personal, for three years. A live-in apprenticeship. No fixed address. Interesting, isn't it? Come for an apprenticeship. This is the chosen pathway method of training 
that God the Father chose through his son, head, heart, hands, practical coaching. What did he say when he recruited his disciples? Follow me. And what did Paul say to the church at Corinth? Follow me as I follow Christ. The apostle Paul was saying, I'm a life learner, but I'd love to teach you what I've learned so you could in turn teach others. You could coach and mentor others in the way of the master up close in relational proximity. If there was a climactic point of this coaching journey for Jesus, it's what we just heard read to us, isn't it? You think of the three years, this mission trip the disciples have been on. The sense of um, drama that is increasing as they come to this upper room near the temple in Jerusalem city and they gather to pull it all together. It's the end of the mission trip. The disciples don't know it, but Jesus does. This is so significant in the coaching framework for the disciples' learning to take the gospel and to take the truth of following Jesus out to the world. And let me read to you again the first three verses. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. There's a sense of destiny building in this meal, this coaching opportunity. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas. There's a complexity of, um, of uh, sin uh, going on and, and um, agenda in this community. The son of Simon Iscariot has been prompted to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So, consequently... He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped the towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So it's the big festival, the Passover festival. Jerusalem is full. People have come from all over. And they're celebrating that time when God ultimately delivered them from the slavery to, uh, their slavery to Egypt. Passover. It's a very big occasion culturally. Um, what are the big occasions you celebrate in life? Think of Christmas, don't we? Or, or, or maybe a party, a birthday party. But there's something significant going on with a small, close-knit community. And clearly Jesus is the leader. You think maybe you're the matriarch of the family or the patriarch. Uh, you imagine everyone's come together on this very special uh, time of celebration. In fact, celebrating something very holy it is an odd thing for the leader to grab the towel and serve the others or wash everyone's feet. And the line I wanted if we could focus on in this first section of this talk is verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. What does that mean? He knows he's got a bit of authority under his belt, doesn't he? He knew that the Father had put all things under his power. That flows off the tongue easily, but that's a big statement. This person, this human being, has absolute authority, yet what did he choose to do? 
He lowered himself and served. Doing the right thing when you can do the wrong thing is character, yes? When you have the power to do whatever you want and you choose to do the right thing, that is character. Character is what we do when no one's looking. When you have the opportunity to do something that is not right, when you do right, it comes out of Christian character. It's the substance you find in a person when you peel away the pretense and the show, the act from a person's life. Have you discovered that character is forged over time? Character is forged through patient practice, through godly habit formation. It's what we're coaching each other in at Northern Life, isn't it? Character. And the reason we need help to shape godly Christian character in each other is because um, we tend as human beings to have blind spots, don't we? If we not only want to, in this process of making disciples, and we've talked about it in our core values, we want to be gospel-grounded, we understand what the gospel is, where it fits in the biblical history and overarching overview, and we want to understand some systematic theology, and we then want to become life learners so that our character is transformed into the likeness of Jesus over time, but we don't do that by ourselves. So we need a community of people to help the Spirit form Christ in us over time. That's why we need each other. We've done some mentoring training. And over the years, for me, I've found this a long time ago, this thing called the Johari window. And I I think it's a really great model about how people coach and mentor and encourage the likeness of Christ into and out of a person. So let's imagine that I'm the one that you're coaching, and you're not doing it all at once, Uh, one at a time, you're coaching me. And so in our relationship, we don't know each other, but we have to develop a relationship because discipleship happens in relational proximity. So we need to know each other. The first part is, I know things about me. Maybe go back to that other one when it was blue. Thanks. Um, There's stuff about me that I know and and you also know. My name. You might know that I'm married. You might know I have some kids. It's a safe quadrant of our relationship. But then you move to the right and if you go to the next one, there are things that I know about me that you don't know. And if you're mentoring me, if, if you show that you're a little bit vulnerable yourself, if you show that you're a little bit interested in listening and not just talking to me, I might actually tell you some stuff that you don't know that's private. Are you with me? Now, that takes vulnerability. That's a place of trust. You can't get to that place there, that quadrant in a relationship, without a bit of time. Or maybe without a crisis. But from the top, it leads us into the bottom quadrants. This is a scary spot for me if you're coaching me because this is my blind spot area. This is the stuff that you know, maybe everyone knows. That's, we don't know. Think about that. You know about me and I don't know. They're the blind spots, right? And you tell me and I say... I'm not really like that. And everyone says, you are. 
That's a blind spot. You know what I'm talking about. Coaching and mentoring moves to that place. So I can't have the character of Christ formed in me unless someone can love me enough to say, you know, that part of you is a bit bit smelly. You know, that, that part of you, it doesn't look and, and feel like Jesus. Anyone enjoy that stuff? That's challenging. That quadrant's hard. No one's ever going to talk to you in that quadrant unless you let them in. Has anyone found as life goes by, you get busier and you push the close relationships away? You're no longer a student. In fact, to be a life learner is a challenging thing to say when you're in the second half of life and you're an expert in life, in your eyes and my eyes. And we often don't let people get close enough, even our spouse, to be able to say, hey, you know, can I share something with you? Doesn't it take humility in that quadrant to receive it? To say, thank you for that. Thanks for taking the courage and having the courage to share that with me. I'm going to process it with the Lord. A great coaching community has that happening all the time. Can you see how that transforms a people? Because we're not afraid. In this quadrant here, I'm a sinner. And I say, I guess I'm a sinner. I'm sure I've got problems. You are too, (laughs) aren't we? Aren't we broken people? We need help. But gee, there's a word starting with G that's required in there. And it's not just God, it's grace. It's love. It's kindness. It's patience. It's like, help me, help me. I need some help. And then the next quadrant is a really exciting quadrant. And that's this quadrant where only God knows. I don't know and you don't know about me but when you journey with somebody in a mentoring relationship that quadrant is a really exciting one because together you're finding out what God is revealing about a person have you been in that space has anyone walked with you in that way have you walked with others I think that's a picture of a really healthy church a coaching community. What sort of stuff would you be talking about? Let's get down to it. In that dangerous blind spot area, what are some of the things that might arise? They could be summarized very quickly with these three words starting with A. Appetites. Not that we just food binge. The appetites of the flesh. Approval and ambition. Aren't they some of the things we struggle with in community as people? So really quickly, um, I think it's the way the devil had a crack at Adam and Eve in the garden. And he tried to do the same thing to Jesus. He tried to come at him through appetites of the flesh, the need for approval and his ambition, at least what the devil thought his ambition was. So let's just very quickly have a think about Luke 4. And I think I've got the text there. The devil said in the wilderness to Jesus, uh, verse 3, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. You remember when mum used to make the bread? Make some beautiful bread out of these stones. You've been fasting 40 days. Jesus answered, what? It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. We all have appetites. Appetites of the flesh, greed and envy and lust. The things that make us... 
less than what we're meant to be, less than human. They're the aspects of sin, the appetites of the flesh, they need to be brought under the rigor of the master. Amen? Yeah? So we want to be a holy people. Only by God's grace. But God uses other people to help shape us. But if I won't let anyone get close enough to me to say to me, you know what, there's a problem. I will never grow in that. I'm stuck. It wasn't just the appetites of the flesh the devil went for. He went for um, what he thought would be Jesus' need for approval. Verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, in the first century, that would have been a long, a long fall. It could have been 30 metres off that top, um, probably down to the western wall. Jumping off um, in that sort of southeastern direction. Imagine the angels, like he said, would have caught Jesus. Wow, can you imagine that happening with the crowd at the bottom? Oh, look, is that, the, is that going to be the Messiah? See if the, the Lord will catch him. Whoa, he did. He can fly. He's a superman. Talk about a megachurch star. Boom, he's got a f- bunch of followers. If it was only approval, a fan base that Jesus was after. The devil was giving it to him on a platter. See, us as disciples, we have needs for approval, don't we? Have you you dug in enough to your heart to work out, why do I respond the way I do to things in life? What am I chasing that is more than our first core value, to be known and loved by God? is where I find my significance. If that's not the core of who I am and what drives me, I'm going to be chasing approval from man and woman. Jesus wasn't after the approval of humans. He wanted to please his Father in heaven. And we have to think about that stuff. There's some of the challenging things we deal with in character formation as a coaching community appetites, approval, and then ambition. The devil, verse 5, led him up to a high place, showed him an instant, in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I'll give you it all. It was a lie. All you have to do is worship me and it'll all be yours. And Jesus said, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Pride of life takes a hold of us. Have you ever had a friend? Really, a family member, someone really close to you, and you watch them get success. They, they say often that the, the two worst things you can have in life are success and failure. Have you found that? Success and failure, they'll both ruin you if you're not careful. Don't think everything's good just because you succeed because it starts you on a trajectory of trusting in your own ability. This ambition that lies within many of us Pride of life, the unrestrained self. Have you got anyone in your life that could come up and give you a clip over the ears in a lovely, loving way and say, pull your head in, mate. You're getting ahead of yourself. And do we have a, 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 a posture of a life learner who would say, maybe that's the Lord. Maybe this is one of my blind spots. I think that that's a really exciting thing to, for us to think about as a church. How do we get to a place where we can, as we grow as a church, be a place where we coach and mentor one another into the likeness of Christ 
and we're courageous enough to go to those places. Jesus had been teaching and modelling godly character for three years. Now as his final act before the cross, he takes the towel and washes feet. And I think it's a beautiful example of Christian competency. So what are we coaching? We're coaching for character, but we also coach for competency. What struck me as I read this again this week is that he knew how to wash feet. Have you ever thought about that? Anyone? He knew how to do it. It's a matter of competency. Verse 12, when he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, Jesus said? You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, I've successfully done it. They're clean. I know how to do the job. You should also wash one another's feet. Anyone have had an embarrassing example like this? Earlier on in our marriage, I, I, I'm a bit of a bogan at heart. Well, there's anything wrong with bogans. I'm just saying, like, yeah, like, I don't iron that much if I can help it. Anyone else like that? Hey, we're, not, we're together in this. <laughs> Equally men and women, which is cool. Um, but, yeah, look, if I can avoid it, I would. Um, and anyway, with some guys over from church and the ironing board was up. And I just had to put it away. And I had a moment, a lapse of concentration. I couldn't quite remember how to put it down. And that little sneaky chink. And these guys saw that and they did, they did not miss it. They're like, haven't been doing much ironing, have you, mate? And that came back to me and haunted me this week when I was preparing this message. But it struck me that I could say, guys, I'm going to give you a lesson in ironing. And they'd look at me and laugh. So you don't know how to do it, man. You don't know how to do it. But when Jesus said, when he thought, I'm going to wash all of your feet, it was a competency that he enacted. How do you learn how to wash a big group of people's feet in in this culturally uh, appropriate setting? You've done it before. You know how to do the task that many others would see as menial, as below them. But he was a servant. He knew how to do it. Um, And he says, you do it too. This is another really helpful coaching model, this um, leadership square. And it's very basic, but I think it's a way for us to remember how to build competency at Northern Life because we need Christian competency. If you know how to do something that's part of the kingdom, and you want to teach someone, this is how Jesus did it. I do, you watch. So you find someone, it's actually happening over here right now. Uh, Florence is learning how to run the computer. Um, but uh, isn't this the way it works? I'm doing it, I know how to do it. And if you want to learn, you watch. And Jesus did that. He grabs some disciples and says, come with me. You want to learn how to live the way God intended you to be human? Come. And then Jesus loved people and ministered in the power of the Spirit and then they would go off and talk about it and the disciples watched. And then what happened? Jesus said, hey, um, get a bit more involved. Peter, James, John, come upstairs with me and help. Be part of this. So you go to that next quadrant where I do and you help. So it's not just a distant watching, but now get, get amongst it and you help. And then where does it go to next? He sends out the 72 and he says, um, I'm going to be with you, but uh, you do and I'll help. That's what's happening here. You do and I help. 
Florence doesn't know she's going to be on for every week from now on in. <laughs> no, but, but isn't that what happens in a coaching community? You do it and someone's helping. And then what this passage moves into, John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, is all about Jesus saying, guys, I'm actually going back to the Father. I'm going to die, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send the Spirit. I'll be with you. So the analogy breaks down a little. But really, where this is all heading is, disciples, you do and I'll watch. I'll be with you. Can we be that? Can we be a coaching community that appreciates that we have different skills, but we have to learn how to be good at those skills? Are you growing in your competency as a Christian? Often, you know, I feel like this is a good question to ask. Are you any good at being a Christian? And it's, it's a provocative question because some of you want to say back, it's not about being good, no one's good. It's a gift. No one gets good at being a Christian. We're monsters of iniquity, hopeless sinners. For the rest of our lives, we're just lucky we get to heaven. There is another way to read the Bible. <laughs> totally a gift of grace that we get saved but we're meant to become more like jesus we're meant to get better at turning cheeks we're meant to get better at giving with this hand and not letting this hand know the right hand just gave because jesus said that's how you give secretly we're meant to get better at living out the sermon on the mount we're meant to get better at loving people in our own strength no way by god's grace but not without effort not without some effort so how are you going at your christian competencies because there are others in our church community who can't do it like you can do it and they're just hanging out for someone to show them how have you learned how to forgive someone that's betrayed you there are people sitting next to you who just are longing to know how to do that. How do you do it? Can we be a coaching community? There's a third aspect, and I, I think it's truly there. It's chemistry. It's a huge part of a coaching community. We, we learn about ourselves and we live out what we've learned in community. And there's a chemistry going on at Northern Life. It can be beautiful and just wonderful and filled with unity and life-giving or it can be a bit toxic. Let's get back to this um, wonderful small group gathering, this dinner that they shared. Can you think of a more important small group dinner that's ever happened on the face of the earth than this one? I'm not sure there is. This is the biggest small group gathering ever. And John 13 to 17 chapters, I think is the most densely packed collection of spiritual truth that any Bible study has ever grappled with. Have a look at it again. Three years of mission and a final debrief. And after this, you know where Jesus goes? After this small group gathering, this meal, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a serious gathering happening here. Have you ever had an amazing small group experience? You gather together and there's this real open sharing and worship and you've prayed and confessed and you feel like you're on the same level and you've maybe even had communion 
then you could imagine how special this night feels. And then verse 18 to 30 is all about betrayal. Isn't it odd? It's the most beautiful, precious moment of community, almost in history. But right in the midst of it is a toxic chemistry of betrayal. There's a traitor in the midst, Judas. And he's made an awful mistake. Anyone made a terrible mistake? Like as human beings, we could look at him and want to judge, but you can't judge him. Somehow he's caught up in this story and God knows and God brings the judgment. But yeah, he's, he's human and he's making a terrible mistake. Our relationships at church, when they're unified and aligned, church is a wonderful place. But it also can be toxic and a place of betrayal. And these human challenges in relationships arise for reasons. We know chemistry is hard to get right, but we need to get it right. And that's what coaching community is about. How are we treating one another? How do I come across? You know, I get this every now and then. Someone will ask me a question and I'll say something back to them. And unless someone tells me what it felt like to receive my response, I don't know that it was a different feeling than I intended to give. (laughs) Does anyone ever have that? That is about chemistry getting right when someone comes up and says like Mel did the other night. She goes, you know, when you responded to them, did you know that that sounded like you were really angry? I said, no, I wasn't angry at all. It, just, it felt like it was. <laughs> I said, thanks for sharing that. I, that's not the way I wanted to come across. But it's the chemistry of the group then changes. So beautiful small group gathering. The chemistry's going a bit off. Jesus knows all about it. Let me read John 15, 9 to 17. So this is further along in the discussion of this epic small group gathering. And Jesus is telling his disciples what they need to do to be a coaching community. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my commands, my Father's commands. And remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I've loved you. Don't miss the the poignancy of this moment. It's the end of the mission trip. It's all coming together. He's about to go to the cross and he says, Guys, love each other as I've loved you. And you're about to see what that means. I'm going to lay my life down for you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you in a relational proximity environment. I've coached you. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. So at Northern Life, we can't do this without a spiritual empowering of love. Amen? Living by yourself is hard, but it's a lot easier than living with other people. Anyone found that? Well, living with people is hard because they remind me that I'm fallen because I see it in them. I'm broken because I see it in them, but I actually am broken. Love lays down one's life 
for another person. I've got to die a little to live a lot. And we need that as a church. And finally, there's call. Character, competency, chemistry, call. It's what we work on as a coaching community. Jesus said in verse 15, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do what? You do them. Go get them. That's what he's saying. Go. Go into all the world and serve the world. You've got a job to do. I showed you how to do it. Go. We have a call. Call is built on an allegiance to Christ. So that's what we need to develop as a church. As we walk with one another, we want to ask each other, do you have an allegiance to Christ that says what the word of God says? If God says it, I'm going to try to follow it. God speaks, we listen. Jesus is worth it. I have an allegiance to someone beyond me. There's a transcendent cause that I've been called to. It's about the glory of Jesus and his gospel. I'm a, I have an allegiance to that. We, that's about call. But then we have to together, a coaching community uh, finds out, Joan, um, how were you designed by God? And we start, you have a different personality to me. And you have different strengths. And I get to be louder because I have a mic and I'm up the front, but I'm not more important than Joan. But a coaching community understands that God has designed us all differently and given us different preparation for our calling in education and experience and pain in life, stuff we've worked through. And then we have different passions. Have you ever found that in the church? Some people are passionate about one thing, others others, and we need that because we're a body and it's about a coaching community finding out someone's call. And then there are these very important questions, timing of the call and implementation. When, when is God wanting to release you into that big thing that he's called you to do that only you can do? What a wonderful church we could be if in five years' time, Lord willing, we have many people who testify to say, I found a sense of call in this community and I was encouraged and blessed and released and supported isn't that what we want to do anybody we want to do that we want to release people into their God-given call and that involves like the disciples times of exhilaration and experiencing spiritual power and also times of persecution and suffering but it's something bigger than ourselves. We're in it together. Have you ever had your cage tapped? Cryptic question and uh, no faces looking at me like you understand what I'm saying. Have you ever had your cage tapped? Wayne Cordero was, is a Hawaiian pastor and he came up with the soap journal. Anyone remember the soap journal we've used in the past for for discipleship and, and, and journaling and prayer. Um, anyway, he tells this story where he was growing up with his dad with a couple of siblings on, in Japan on an army base. And I remember hearing him tell this story years ago, 25 years ago, to be honest, um, because he's a real a, a pastor and a releaser of people. And he uses this story which changed his life. He, he was a young kid. They're in Japan and they were in an army base. And one day they went out, a bunch of kids in the car with their dad. They went up this mountainside to get out of the base in Japan. 
And they stop, and on one side of the road, this beautiful view, on one side of the road, there is someone selling lunch boxes, and on the other side of the road, there's a, a, a little Japanese man selling um, birds in cages. And he, he said, oh, okay, that's 100 yen, 36 US cents. I think I'll buy a pet. I'm not that hungry. I think I'll buy a little bird, like a finch, in a cage. So he paid the 100 yen, took the little bird, and he started walking off. And the, the Japanese man said, oh, by the way, in Japanese, he said, um, don't forget to bring me back the cage. And, of course, Wayne's like, I'm not going to eat it. <laughs> I, I bought it as a pet. He says, oh, no, no, you, you misunderstand what this is. You pay me 100 yen and you go up there to the edge of the cliff and you let the bird free. And so it's quite funny. Wayne tells the story. If I looked at his shoes and my shoes, he's a pretty old guy. I thought I could probably outrun him. I'm not giving this bird away. And then he thought, I probably got ninja stars or something. He's going to get me. So he thought, okay, I will. So he goes over with the bird and he holds it up and he opens up the gate, the, the door. And the bird doesn't do anything. He just sort of sits there. And then finally the bird jumps across to the edge sort of looking outside, and still wouldn't jump. So this little boy, Wayne Cordero, he taps the cage. And the little finch goes... <laughs> and he, he says, it sort of went out, did a circle, and came back in almost to say, thank you. <laughs> and then flew off into the distance. And as a pastor who's been really used by the Lord to encourage people to step into their dreams and their calling... He said, I never realised that that day when I chose the bird over the, the lunchbox, that that moment would have such an impact on my life, on my sense of call for me. He said, because I've been called to be a dream releaser. And that stuck with me, that people go through life and nobody taps the cage. No one says, I believe in you. You're good at that. I'm proud of you. Wow, we're behind you. Fly. And they go, I could never fly. Tap, tap, fly. Anyone want to be a church like that? That's a dream release of church. You can't do that properly without getting to know the bird. We need to get to know one another. It's done in relational environments. It's about bringing our failure and brokenness before God in those honest relationships. Because God can't use me that well if I'm just stuck with bad character. If I can bring those issues before his grace and the power of his spirit and, and then learn competency and then learn to live that out in community with others, there's a really good chance I'll be able to find my call and move in it. And that's when exciting things happen because it's about multiplication. That's our future as a church. Coaching community, one person at a time. Hey, Rex. So I want us to do something It's practical. Sorry if you feel this is awkward, but life is awkward following Jesus. Let's do a little game. It's much more than a game. Let's see what it would be like for Rex to pick one person to sow his life into, say, for a year. It's only one person, and you're going to symbolise that by giving them a fist pump. You know, fist pump? It's like, in, I encourage you, I want to encourage you, not because I'm better than you, but I just want to encourage you to fly and be all that God wants you to be. 
And when you do that to someone, could they both stand? So do you have anyone you could pick nearby? Just put your fist out and you do it back. Oh, you're both in. Okay, so you stand up and you're in this coaching community together. Because Rex saw Richard and went, you know what? We've got some connection here. And they just, just encouraged Richard. And, and then the two of them actually journeyed together and thought, I'm going to do this to someone else. So there's any chance you guys could both just pick one? You have to do two. Just one person to say, go for it. I'm encouraging you. And you just put your hand, just pick somebody if you want. Peter's encouraged. Henry's encouraged. So stand up. No, no, stand up. We're still in. So Peter's in. Now we've got four. Peter, could you stand up? Now you don't have to because it takes courage to go up to someone and build a relationship and and say, I'm going to... This sounds a lot like secret friends, doesn't it? (laughs) But now the men are involved. It is very male-dominant, this early church. Look. So there's four of us. I wonder, is anyone feeling like, I'd love to do that one more time, just pick one person to say, encouragement, dream release, tap the cage, go for it if you'd like to, and then keep standing. If you're someone that they go to, you can do it to your wife. That's amazing. Stand up. Don't keep going. Karen's ready to set off, but she's got to learn. Okay, stand up, guys. We should have eight. Anyone in? Henry, did you find a person to encourage? So stand up. Okay, so now we've got eight people. It's a fledgling group, isn't it? Do you think you could change the world with them? Maybe we should set up a classroom where we all meet together. Or maybe not. Maybe the way of the master is everyone knows how to do it. Find someone to encourage in Jesus' name. All it takes is a fist. Fist pump. Go for it. See if, we can, see if we can double in size. Stand up if you're in. If you've, guys, if you want to, you can just... There's people in front. They're easy pickings. Okay, stand up if you've been encouraged and someone's tapped your cage. Wow, this is awesome. We're starting to feel encouraged, hey? I reckon the band should come up because you're going to be ready to play in a minute. Okay, so how many have we got? We're ready to go. Can we have another generation of encouragement? You're going to have to move, I'm sorry. No Baptist or Anglican or Presbyterian wants to move once they're in a spot. Could we find someone, please, find someone to encourage, give a fist pump. These guys over here are unreached people group. Max is waiting for someone to tap his cage. Stay standing, please. That wasn't that hard, was it? Has anyone had that happen to you? Has anyone had someone believe in you and you know your life is different because they did that? Anybody? I want to give you the mic to pray for us. Can you pray a blessing over us that that's the sort of people we are? I don't mind who it is. just love you to pray. Just a blessing that we have the courage to do that one by one. Just keep loving people, encouraging, seeing Christ in them. Can I give you the mic? Someone who'd like to?